is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, CFP, MVP, homecoming king, and personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He really was homecoming king. In this week's episode, we warned you we were changing up the show's format a bit, and here's another change. Rather than bring you a mailbag episode the last week of every month, we'll aim to bring you interesting interviews with outside experts in the field of retirement, money, finance, and honestly, whatever we want to talk about. This week, Bro sits down with Jeffrey Sanzenbacher, economist with the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. They're going to talk about the big trends in retirement today, as well as what to do about Social Security. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Longtime listeners know that one of my go-to sources for academic research into financial independence is the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. Besides a steady stream of studies and analysis, both on their main website and their Squared Away blog, the Center also created the National Retirement Risk Index, a measure of the percentage of Americans that will be able to maintain their standard of living once they leave the working world. Here to talk about the index and plenty of other topics is Dr. Jeff Sanzenbacher, Associate Professor of the Practice of Economics and a Research Fellow at the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. Dr. Sanzenbacher, welcome to Motley Full Answers. Thanks so much, Robert. So let's start with the National Retirement Risk Index. What is it and what's it saying about retirement preparedness in America nowadays? Yeah, the National Retirement Risk Index is an index that basically takes where people are um, on their life track for retirement savings and projects them out to the time when they're going to retire and then looks and see, are they likely to have enough money to maintain their standard of living? Uh, if they if they do have enough money, uh, then we would say they're not at risk. And if they don't have enough savings so that it looks like when they get to retirement, they're going to fall short and not be able to kind of keep living how they are, we would say they're at risk. And the index shows that about half of people are at risk of not having enough wealth to maintain their standing of living once they retire. And that's generally speaking at the retirement age of 65, which is, is that around the average nowadays? Uh, you know, that is actually around the average nowadays. A lot of people, you know, like any average, a lot of people don't make it. A lot of people work longer. But yeah, the average is right around 65. So what happens to the other half? Are they still retiring? And then they figure out later that maybe they shouldn't have? Yeah, I mean, I think we've looked at some data on what happens to people who reach that threshold without enough money. And there are a couple of things that show up. Their health outcomes appear worse, slightly more likely to um, to die within the study period, uh, more likely to report being in, a health, in poor health. And they also report being less satisfied with their retirement, which makes sense. If you think about the goal of retirement savings um, is to be able to maintain your standard of living once the major source of your income, your earnings is gone. Um, and so when we say, you know, you don't have enough wealth to retire, what that means is you retire and then your standard of living drops from what you've been used to your whole life. And so, uh, you know, of course, you're going to be dissatisfied. And that, that's really one of the main things we see. Do we know much about the process by which people make the decision to retire? I mean, to me, it's kind of amazing that people choose to quit before they have sufficient resources. Are yeah. they getting bad advice? Are they underestimating how much retirement costs? Or are just too many people saying, okay, I'm 65, it's time to retire, and they really didn't do much analysis? I think there's a lot of that. I mean, I think if you look at like when people retire, there are these huge spikes at 62 and 65. 62 being when you can first claim Social Security, 65 being when you can first get Medicare, and I think those kind of like benchmarks play a big role in people's thinking. If there's one thing, I, I hate to admit this as a researcher, but if there's one thing I've learned doing lots and lots of regressions on people's retirement you know, decision, 
if we can't explain a whole lot, you know, we might explain 25 to 30 percent of, of people's decision making. You know, as an econometrician, I, that's not so bad. I mean, 25 to 30 percent of what people do is not not the worst thing in the world. But that means there's 70 percent we really don't know. I think a lot of it comes down to how much does someone hate their job or like their job. Um, and that's obviously hard to capture in data. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to these rules of thumb based around these ages that, that we've kind of drilled into our heads as being important ages. Um, I think some of the more salient things that people do consider is their health. You know, are they well enough to keep working? Um, spouses play a big role. If your spouse retires, you're more likely to retire. Um, so those, those are things we can measure. I think one of the big things that we really can't measure are these soft job characteristics that, you know, someone hates their job. They don't like their boss. They're stressed out. And those are just really hard to pick up in economic data. So I think that plays a big role, too. One solution for people who don't have sufficient resources is to work longer. And a previous Center for Retirement Research publication suggested that 85% of workers would be prepared if they worked to age 70. So is this what we should be aiming for as a society? Is 70 the new 65 when it comes to retirement? I, you know, I, I wish that it was, Robert, but I, I think it is. There's an inequality in who can work longer. Um we did a study, a, a colleague, Nick Balbase and myself, did a study looking at variation and how easy or difficult our jobs to do for a while. And one thing that consistently comes up is, you know, first of all, like, and this maybe goes without saying, but blue collar jobs are much harder to do into your 60s than is a white collar job on average. Um, and the reason for that is pretty simple. You know, a lot of those jobs use physical strength and physical strength, you know, does decline with age. Um, you know, on top of that... I think the ability to kind of switch jobs to find a career that's both meaningful but also easy to do is easier for, for white-collar workers who might have more options by the time they reach that age. And on top of that, I think white-collar workers have more options to, to self-employed consulting, things like that on the side that maybe keep them in the labor force but aren't like a full-time job and yet still still pay pretty well. We see a lot of independent contracting uh, in the form of consulting amongst older white-collar workers. So I think all those things basically mean there's this inequality in who can work longer. Um, and on top of that, like that inequality is really correlated with wealth inequality. And so, you know, the people who maybe need to work the longest, the most, who have the least savings, a lot of times those are the very same people who can't really work longer because they're in a physical job, you know, or they're in poor health. And so there are these cross correlations that I think are dangerous for people. We've talked before on the show about how many people end up retiring sooner than expected. Yeah, a lot of that. The number one reason is health. You know, people think, "Oh, yeah, I'm going to be able to work to 65 or maybe 67 or 70, no problem." And then something happens, and they're not able to do that. Yeah, health is by far the biggest reason, measurable reason we could find. Again, it's one of those situations where we did a study saying, "Okay, how do we explain why people retire before they plan?" You know, if you ask people in their early 50s, they'll say, "Oh, yeah, I want to work till 65. I want to work till 66." A lot of people don't make it. Um, and so we did a study looking at, you know, why don't they make it? And again, health was a really big reason. Another big reason was they lost their job. They got laid off and couldn't find a new job. Um, but we also couldn't explain a lot of it. You know, we couldn't, again, we couldn't explain 70% of it. And so we, we have this kind of, well, we're doing a pretty good job statistically. It's not, not bad, you know. Um, but at the same time, it, it leaves a lot of uncertainty as far as like people have this plan, not when they're 30. I mean, they're, they're in their 50s. They should be you know, they should have a number in their head that's somewhat more realistic. And yet, um, and yet a lot of people don't make it. We don't exactly know why. So I suspect it's some combination of maybe a spouse retired faster than they thought. Maybe, um, maybe they had grandkids and they want to go see the grandkids. 
Um, maybe their um, maybe their job they hated it more than they thought, but but a lot of it is hard to tell. So so health, losing a job are big observed factors, but a lot of it's stuff we can't see. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen some of the evidence that's come out that many people have retired during the pandemic. Uh, one report I said that estimated maybe, maybe two million people retired more than they would have expected, and it's I guess that's a combination of maybe people lost their jobs. Also, maybe because the stock market has done well, uh, but certainly there, there these things happen and people didn't plan them happening. And then they're at this point in life like, well, heck, why not? Why don't I just go ahead and retire? Yeah, I think the COVID recession is interesting because what you what you typically see during a recession, you know, like like everything in life, unfortunately, things that are bad for the economy tend to hit lower income people worse. And so typically during a recession, we see lower income people retire at a higher rate. And I put retire in quotes because I think they leave the workforce, maybe non-voluntarily, look a little bit and then say, you know what, I'm done with this. Um, and that happens to low-income people a lot more during recessions. What's weird about the COVID recession is we saw it happen to high-income people more than we'd expect to. And so I think you're right, Robert. I think the stock market doing well probably plays a role. I think those people may also have been fairly well prepared. And who wants to go to work if there's this dangerous virus out there that's especially dangerous to you in your, you know, in your 60s? Um, so I think that also plays a role. Um, and so we do see this interesting pattern, a different pattern during the COVID recession than we, than we had seen before. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I'm working on with a colleague at the center is doing some work on unretirement. So one thing we're always interested in is how many people unretire. So they retire. They thought it was a good idea. Um, they realize, ah, no, it's not. Or the economy is coming back. I can find a job easily. And so they unretire. We're trying to look into that and see if that's happening in this recession. Interesting. I, I look forward to that research. Yeah. Um, theoretically, another solution might be to use home equity, especially since many Americans have more in home equity than they have saved in their 401k. Yeah. Um, but how often is that used as a retirement resource and, and should it be? Yeah. To a first approximation, never, I think. Um, it's very rarely used. Um, I, I think that it, it's always worth noting, you know, as much as we talk about the stock market and as important as that is for retirement, probably a third of, a third of workers have nothing in retirement accounts. Probably another third don't have that much, so their house is by far the biggest asset they have for retirement. Then you have the top third that maybe have kind of an equal, maybe a roughly equal amount of both. Um, and so for that, for that kind of bottom, really seventy percent, the house is really important. There, there are the main two ways, I guess, that people can access the house, or maybe three ways. One is downsizing, so people kind of go from their the house they they had in their thirties, forties, and fifties, and downsize to a smaller house, and in doing that, um, kind of pocket the profit. That is somewhat uncommon. People are really attached to their house. You know, I I, I went to Newt to a, I gave a talk in Newton, Massachusetts, um, and it was at a senior center. It was about these options. So one is downsizing, one is doing a reverse mortgage. And one is doing something called a property tax deferral, where you're not really you're just basically using your home equity to pay your prop to pay your property taxes while you're alive. And then when you sell the house, it gets paid off. Um, people hated all these things. No one wanted. No one wanted to hear it. It was very hostile. I'm not used to hostile crowds. It was not a happy crowd. Um, people don't want to sell their house. They have a lot of memories in their house. People don't want to take a reverse mortgage because I think somewhat rightfully, they don't quite trust that industry. I think that industry has made a lot of strides um, over the last couple of years, has done a lot, I think, to reform things. Like, for example, if you have a non-borrowing spouse now, they've done a lot to make it easier for that non-borrowing spouse to stay in their house. Um, so I think that industry is making strides, but people still don't trust it. And then 
the property tax deferral, a lot of times are income restricted. So that's, that's a bit of a problem. It seems like a means tested program and people don't like that. Um, and also it is a lien against your house if people don't like. So, so people very rarely use any of these options, um, which is, you know, understandable, but also frustrating as someone who sees that as like the biggest store of wealth that the typical person has. Yeah, I, 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 you know, people do have very emotional attachments to their house and they're very uncomfortable with any thought of like, you know, any concept that's similar to like spending your house, right? Because then what's going to happen? So, right. uh, but, but clearly it's the lifeline for, for, it's going to be the lifeline for millions of Americans. I think it is. I think the one way it is used is like an emergency, you know, something bad, really, really bad happens, you use the house as your, your, your lifeline. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not how, as economists, we want to see people use their wealth in kind of a linear, nice, orderly way. Um, that's why, you know, we're always, you know, as an economist, I pull my hair out saying, come on, like, you know, use this store of wealth. But as a person, I know that the economist is kind of the crazy one because people do have these attachments to their to their homes. And that that's normal, I think. So um, the economist to me is frustrated, but the person to me does does get it. Yeah. Uh, besides running out of money, another risk in retirement, and one that I don't think is discussed enough, is cognitive decline as we age. And we've all had the experience of speaking with older relatives, and and you notice how they're slipping, and sometimes slipping a little bit, and sometimes you know maybe on on the road to full blown dementia. Yeah. So, how prevalent is cognitive decline in retirement, and how does it potentially affect money management? I think in people's you know people's sixties and even early seventies, it's it's probably. Um, common that there's mild cognitive decline, probably not not too common that it would get in the way of financial management resources right away. By the late 70s and 80s, I would say it becomes quite common that people should be looking for help with managing their money. Um, you know, a lot of times it's subtle things. People are missing bill payments they never missed before. Um, but it can devolve into kind of full-blown fraud risk and things like that. Um you know, it's not just Alzheimer's. I, th I think even people who don't get Alzheimer's can have enough co enough natural cognitive decline by their by their late eighties that they, they're going to need help. Um, the good news is most people have help. Um, we did a study where I think about eighty five percent of people had some form of help most of the time from family. Um, you know, sometimes from from outsiders, most of the time from family. Um, you know, but the problem is those other fifteen percent are bad off. They have they're a lot more likely to miss bill payments, a lot more likely to to have struggle with with hunger, a lot more likely to um to uh, report not having enough money um, for basic necessities. And so, making sure that when you're in your sixties or early seventies, when you when you when you are able to really plan ahead, that you make sure you have a family member who's ready to help you. Um, that you make sure you're not relying entirely on your spouse who you think you'll out, who you think you know you'll live with forever, but who you might might pass away before you. Making sure you have a backup plan in that case is really important. Um, and I don't think people really make those plans, you know, often enough. And so I, I do think at least considering who would I have helped me, and then maybe formalizing that power of attorney, financial power of attorney, or doing making sure your, your will is in order. Those kind of things are all very smart. RBC Wealth Management had a report on this and told the story of a woman who is a successful children's book author and illustrator. Her husband handled all the finances as well as her business. Mm, and, yep. and she didn't know that he went five years without paying taxes, made some bad investments, uh, because all due to gradually progressive to cognitive decline. And they pretty much lost everything. Um, so it is a situation. I mean, most couples, 
one person does all the financial management and the other person trusts them. So there is a point where you have to get other help. Everyone, maybe more than one or two people have to have an eye on what's happening to the bills, make sure that bills are getting paid or not being repeatedly paid over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also key that people have to accept that this could happen to them. I mean, when you dig into like the legal community, you find story after story of family members clearly say, seeing that someone is in trouble, but that person is, is not willing to accept help, not willing to acknowledge yeah. and not willing to give up control. Yeah, the, con- the the taking away the keys kind of conversation, I think, is really hard for people, especially a lot of times as a child helping a parent. And that that role reversal, I think, is really difficult. Um, you know, taking away the keys, you know, driving is literally, I think, one of the things where this conversation happens pretty early. Um, but financial management is another place where I think it happens. Um, and, and it's it's hard. Um you know, Social Security does have a program called the Representative Payee Program that can help with that, but it's a really big step to take because basically it means Social Security is paying the money directly to another person who's charged with taking care of the the beneficiary. And that's a big step. You know, that's a big step. And, and, and Social Security doesn't take it lightly. So it is hard to kind of formalize these arrangements, but it's worth, I think, worth thinking about doing. Staying on the topic of health, um, the evidence about the healthiness of retirement itself is actually kind of mixed. Um, some studies indicate that it is associated with cognitive decline because you sort of lose the, the, the intellectual stimulation of work, could lead to social isolation, could lead to depression. Other studies, on the other hand, that find that general happiness levels rise after retirement. So what's your take on that? Do you think retirement is good for people? I, I tell I tell everyone who will listen to me, which um, does not include my family, unfortunately, but I tell everyone that will listen to me. Um, it's not include my parents, especially, but I tell them work work as long as you kind of can and are happy working. Um, my sense is the the overwhelming you know amount of literature on health suggests that retirement is associated with worsening physical health. Um, you know, notwithstanding kind of jobs that are very physical, but in general, you know, there's a study showing that at age 62, there's a discrete uptick in mortality because there's a discrete change in retirement. Um, some colleagues at the Center for Retirement Research um, just did a research using Dutch data. And they showed that in the Netherlands, there was a change in policy that, that subtly changed people's retirement age and um, that, that people who were affected in a way where they retired later live longer. Um, you know, that my, my sense is that overwhel- is that kind of the majority of the evidence is on that side. And when you combine that with the idea that working longer helps your financial wellness, you know, my sense is that, well, there's, there's no literature that says it doesn't help your financial lit- wellness. And most of the literature says it helps your physical wellness. To me, that says, like, just work work longer if you can. Um, you know, like I said, hard, easy advice to give, hard when someone doesn't feel like working anymore. Um, and I've been frustrated with every single one of my relatives and in-laws, but, uh, but I'll keep saying it. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. I said at a previous show that I, I certainly expect to work till age 67, uh, if not longer. But then I come across you know, stories of people who died at age 67 or 68. Yeah. Nancy, Nancy Griffith, the folk singer. I'm like, man, I don't want to wait. I don't want to save everything until retirement. That's for Yeah, sure. no, I completely, I understand that. And I think, you know, if you, again, like the economist to me looks at the numbers and says, look, if you're a healthy 67-year-old um, man, it is um, worth it. You know, claiming at 67 or 68 probably maximizes your lifetime benefit from Social Security. Um because your your life expectancy is probably 85 86. Of course, like that's not for every not everyone's going to get that life expectancy. And you don't want to miss out on years of retirement and and benefits that you might get. And and so I think it is tough. 
Um, but the economist who says maximize lifetime benefits, you know, that is like 67 years old for a, for a healthy man. Is there anything else about retirement planning, either on an individual or national level, that you think doesn't get as much attention as it should? The thing is sort of, you know, on the on the individual level, so there's, yeah, on the individual level, the big thing that I've been thinking a lot about is decumulation of 401ks. Like we have spent a lot of time trying to understand what's the best way to get people into 401ks? What are the best investment options? How do you how do you kind of get people to save? Do you do auto enrollment, auto escalation, all these cool features, all to get money into the system? And I don't think most people have a clue how to get it out. Um, it is really hard for people to go in this thing they've been building for their whole life. And they have this pile of money that they've grown very attached to. They like to look at the balance. They like to feel like it's there. To go and take money out of that is a completely different experience. You know, it used to be people had pensions and a pension is very much like a paycheck, which is how we all live. And so we're used to that idea that I get a paycheck every month or every two weeks and I take that and I spend it and I save a little bit of it and then I go on and the next month and more money comes. A 401k is the opposite of that. You got a big pile of money that you got to choose how to draw down. There are obviously rules like, you know, starting at age 70, you got to start pulling that money out. But like, you know, people don't know how to do it. And I think as a society, we should be thinking harder about how do we do this? People don't want to buy annuities. You know, again, like it's like using your house. I think people should do it. People don't like annuities. Um, um, I basically say a lot of things people don't listen to. You buy annuities, use your house, <laughs> delay retirement. No one listens. Um, but those are all reasonable things to do. Um, but on the national level, the thing that's really been driving me crazy is Social Security. Um, you know. For a lot of people, Social Security, probably a third to a half, Social Security is their main source of retirement income. And we know that 12 years from now, benefits are going to drop by 20% if we don't do anything. Um, and I think that, you know, if the past is any indication in 2032, we'll start talking about it. In 2033, we'll do something a month before it's done. But I do worry that that's something we do will be damaging to some people. Um it may be unintentionally. So one of the things that, of course, is always talked about is pushing back the full retirement age, which is a reasonable thing probably to talk about doing. Um, but it does hurt those people who can't extend their careers more than it hurts people that can extend their careers. And that means basically blue collar workers or disproportionately people of color are going to suffer relative to white collar workers. And, and so I really do think having that discussion a little bit earlier can help us talk about like some of the creative ways we could deal with it. Instead of just doing what I think will happen, which is in 2033, they'll increase the payroll tax 5% and increase the FRA by two years and we'll move on. But I don't know that's sort of the best way. And so I'd like to have the conversation now. So nationally, that'd be what I'd like to see. Yeah. FRI standing for full retirement age, of course. And I, uh, yeah. And, I, and you know, I certainly think, yeah, I, I appreciate all your comments about put, moving the age back is difficult for some people. I definitely think it makes sense to, to move up that minimum age of 62. Oh, yeah. I do too. I mean, and if you're, if you are unable to work, that's a disability issue, right? And then yeah, we have a program, program. That, yep. right? But as you pointed out, people, I, I think this just recently changed, but 62 was the most popular claiming age just because it's there. Yeah, I think it just changed, but I think it was forever. I think it still pretty much is like tied with, I think, 65 probably, um, which 65 is is not a year. It, it's, it's Medicare. It's not anything to do with Social Security anymore. It's the old FRA, old full retirement age. But um, 
Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I agree with you on that. I think point, pushing up that early age, and I, I actually think increasing the full retirement age makes sense. But, you know, if for no other reason, people are living longer. But it's worth noting that people are living longer unequally, too. And so just, I think, thinking a little bit about, you know, how do we do this in a way that maintains the progressivity of the program is worth doing. Although I also agree it probably needs done somehow. Right. Yeah. Uh so final question here, whenever I talk with a retirement expert, I like to close the interview by asking about their own plans. So what does retirement look like for you? Obviously, you're going to work as long as you can. Are you going to kill over yeah. your desk at Boston College there one day? I know. I, uh, I'm i very lucky in that I do a job that I absolutely love. And so it's it's hard to imagine retiring from it. I teach college kids, which if you ask me, is like a great, a great job. Um but like what I can see doing is kind of phasing out where I teach a class or two, you know, for income and to keep myself engaged with the school, but I'm not kind of using up a full-time slot or I'm, I'm kind of moving out a little bit like that. Um, because I do think like that, uh, you know, working full-time well into my seventies probably isn't a goal of mine, but I would like to, to work into my sixties full-time, you know, well into my late sixties and then probably transition to teaching a class or two would be great if, if that's still an option for me. You know, that, that would kind of be an ideal situation for myself. But um, certainly, I'm in a job that, you know, isn't physically demanding, um, you know, um, and and fortunately, you know, we all experience cognitive decline, but the things that we know and have known our whole lives are the things that stick with us the longest. So kind of if you're teaching like a micro theory class that hasn't changed since Adam Smith, that hopefully I can do forever. If you're teaching a class on econometrics, that's a little harder because it does change over time. And so hopefully I'll be able to teach a class that kind of is stuff that really is, is kind of the, the kind of bedrock of the, of this, of the discipline. Our guest today has been Dr. Jeff Sanzenbacher, Associate Professor of the Practice of Economics and a Research Fellow at the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on Motley Full Answers. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I hope that was great. Well, that's the show. It's edited quickly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.